On Tuesday, November 3, 2020, the American people will go to the polls to vote in a presidential election. This is an election unlike any other. Occurring in the midst of an ongoing global pandemic that has brutalized the American economy, in the shadow of widespread protests against racial injustice, and in the aftermath of the controversial appointment of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, this election will be considered by many a referendum on the Trump presidency. The world is holding its breath. Will America re-elect Donald J. Trump? I'm David Blunt. This is the City Politics Podcast, a roundtable discussion on politics, international relations, and current affairs. Today, we'll give you the city view on election 2020. Well, hello there. Thanks for listening to the City Politics Podcast. Today, I'm joined, as always, by the auger of the School of Arts and Social Sciences, Constantine Vossing. We also have friend of the show, Inderjeet Parmar, professor of international politics. Today, we're going to be talking about the only show in town, whether Donald Trump will be re-elected on November 3rd. But before we do this, we've got to look into the city crystal ball. So, Constantine, take it away. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening in. So for all of you who've already listened to the City Politics podcast, you know that we always get things started by asking our guests 10 yes or no questions. It's tough for academics to stick to that because we always have a lot of stuff to say. Um, But it has helped us to sort of condense people's contributions and to sharpen the mind and uh, to use that as a springboard for further discussion. So. Uh, Here are the 10 crystal ball questions. Uh, Number one, uh, will we know the result of the election on November 3rd? Inderjit, what do you think? No. David? Nope. Number two, will Joe Biden win the popular vote? Inderjit? Yes. Yes. Uh, Uh, David? Absolutely. Number three, Will Donald Trump be re-elected as president, fair and square? Hmm. No. I'm going to go with no as well. Number four. If Donald Trump loses, will he go quietly, accepting defeat? Indigit. No. <laughs> We're not getting very pluralistic with this because I'm <laughs> saying no as well. I don't think he's ever done anything quietly. No, he hasn't. He's not a shy retiring <laughs> type. <laughs> Number five, will the courts have to decide the outcome of the election, reminiscent of Bush versus Gore? Indigit. Yes, I think so. I think so. David? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that it's going to be thrown to the courts as well. Number six, will turnout be at a record high compared to other elections, say, since the late 1990s? Indigit. Yes, probably the biggest turnout since 1908, apparently. David, yes or no? I'm going to say no, but it's kind of for the sake of argument. A contrarian. Number seven. Will there be a Democrat trifecta, House, Senate, White House, or one? Indigit. Yes, I think so. David. I want to say yes, but part of me is really hesitant. So maybe I'll say no to put the case about why I think it's not going to turn out that way. Right. Number eight. If Trump loses, will there be violence in Najit? Yes. David? Yes. Number nine. If Trump wins, will there be violence in Najit? Yes. Also, yes. (laughs) And number 10. 
When historians look back on the election in 20 years, will they say that Trump's response to his COVID infection was a key turning point? Imagine. A key turning point, yes. Thanks. Uh, David? A key turning point, but not the key turning point. All right. Thank you so much. This was the crystal ball on the upcoming American presidential election. Thanks, Constantine. It's always a bit uh, strange to be on the other side of the crystal ball. You both said that Joe Biden will uh, win the popular vote. Um, and you also said that Donald Trump wouldn't go quietly. But we still don't know who's going to become president in the end because, you know, there's all these contingencies. You know, there's the courts. You all said that, you know, it's going to go to the courts and there's violence. And so I think you're both imagining sort of a long, drawn-out struggle for, um, you know, for in, in order to sort of determine who won this election. So let's say, you know, in January, who's going to, who's going to be scheduled to become president by the end of the month? What do you think, Indajit? How is it going to turn out, all of this? That is the thing that is keeping everybody awake and anxious. Um, with a 6-3 majority on the Supreme Court, uh, three of them appointed by Donald Trump, several of them having been on the Bush legal team in 2000, uh, which, uh, which that, that election result also went to the Supreme Court. Uh, and also yesterday, a decision by Brett Kavanaugh, one of the justices appointed by Trump, in the case in Wisconsin, uh, where he ruled that any mail-in ballots uh, received after election day, uh, even if they're postmarked election date, will not be counted because there is uh, the suspicion of impropriety about mail-in ballots, which is exactly the thing that Donald Trump has been saying. So if that turns out to be the dominant view in the Supreme Court, if this goes there, then I think it'll be Donald Trump uh, who will be declared the winner through the official processes. But the impact of that, I mean, last week it was revealed that many labor unions and many other civil society protest organizations, legal organizations, some of them are planning general strikes. Some of them, they're all planning to be near polling stations and recruiting poll watchers. And we know President Trump has encouraged armed uh, men and women to, uh, to go up to the polls. Uh, uh, with their open carry. And we also know that sheriffs and police associations have in many, many parts of the country said that they're not going to enforce the, the, law, the rules against open carrier weapons a hundred feet from the, from the polling station. So it's a powder keg of potential strife and violence. And we're talking here about the pivotal state in the world system. And it's not just, it may not be exceptional in the way in which Americans often talk about American exceptionalism, but it's not an ordinary state either. And, you know, people say when, the, uh, when Wall Street sneezes, uh, the city of London catches a cold. I think uh, the US is going into a continuous COVID cough. I don't know what is going to happen in the rest of the world or in the US going forward. So the factors are all there for uh, a great deal of strife. I would say. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with almost everything Indrajit said. Uh, I don't think that the Republicans have a Democratic majority anymore in the United States, uh, something that can deliver, you know, a, a president that can win the popular vote. However, that's not all that counts, right? Uh, the problem is that uh, 
through the Supreme Court and through the way that the American electoral system is structured. You know, it's not one big election, it's 50 small elections. Uh, well, small, California is not small, Texas isn't small, but it's 50 individual elections, each with their own rules, appointing people going to an electoral college. You know, I can see Trump winning, perhaps legitimately, the same way that he did in 2016, in an electoral college win uh, that doesn't have the popular vote. Uh, but given the, what the polls are indicating, there has to be some pretty extreme voter suppression uh, in order for that to happen. And that will happen. And if that happens, then we can look at Supreme Court challenges, almost certainly. And uh, we've seen, as Inderjeet said, that Brett Kavanaugh is on the record already setting the table for a potential electoral challenge, you know, Bush v. Gore too. And uh, he is adopting a position that when Rehnquist put it out in 2000 was seen as being extremist. This idea that uh, counting all the votes would somehow flip the election. And I think uh, Kagan's response to Kavanaugh that you can't flip an election until the votes are counted was the general assumption of uh, most people in the United States until yesterday, until Kavanaugh came out with this ruling on Wisconsin, which is really setting, setting up uh, Trump's fixation on a fixed election. Uh, even though there's no evidence, uh, the suggestion that there could be inappropriateness seems to be enough to weigh the Trump-leaning judges towards making some choices or some judgments in the Supreme Court that would be unthinkable 20 years ago, even on Bush v. Gore. And that's dangerous, right? I mean, Inderjeet's talked about the labor unions mobilizing and uh, sort of pushing civil resistance. And this election, you know, it's been really reminding me of, uh, this is me showing my political philosophy roots, of uh, Machiavelli's discourses on, uh, on, on Titus Livy, where he talks about republics being fragile, right? And this is something that I never really thought about in relation to America. But Machiavelli makes the point that they are a very hard system of government to maintain for a very long time. And America is over 200 years old, and it might be going towards a pretty extreme crisis of a democratic and even Republican government. Uh, it could become a Republican in name only uh, in the not too distant future. So what you're saying is that for a democratic party that faces uh, sort of the inbuilt sort of bias against non-white, non-rural voters um, that is uh, faced with, uh, with voter suppression measures and that is faced with the threat of sort of uh, legal dealings that are, that are sort of well, beyond, as you both said, beyond sort of what, is, what should be, what is legally acceptable. A democratic party that faces these three challenges will have a hard time to actually win the election, even though it might have even a, a not just the majority of the popular vote, but even by all, you know, by for all intents and purposes, um, should have a majority in the electoral college. Now, if that's true, what I'm wondering is how long is this kind of Republican strategy sustainable uh, beyond this particular election, uh, considering that the, the number of voters that sort of falls into this uh, category of voters that, that, that need to vote for the Republican Party to make the strategy feasible, then non-college educated white voters, um, that is, it, it has been in constant decline, it's going to decline further. So, you know, looking into the future even more than just January 2021, um, is this something that the Republican Party um, can do for more than once, or is this just a one-time sort of thing that you sort of, you expect to happen? 
That's a really good question. And it is something which, you know, when you look at the demographic trends as you describe them as well, that in about 20 years time or so, there's going to be a majority minority kind of nation and so on. But the problem is that the, the, the demographics have not favored the Republican Party for quite some time. Yet the Demo Republican Party has delivered victories on so many occasions, which says that that voter suppression, voter restriction, the difficulties in the barriers to registration to vote, all those kind of things which the Voting Rights Act, if you like, from the 60s prevented because they were directed at uh, black voters, particularly in the South, all of those um, those protections have been systematically removed. And so the consequence is that people say, well, the people who get elected are choosing their electors so that they will make the right choice in choosing them to remain elected personnel. So you're basically skewing the electorate in order to guarantee your own victories. So demographic shift then, if you like, yes, that's a popular shift. That's a opinion poll shifts, but it's not an electoral shift because you've skewed the electorate and you use all kinds of, you know, your signature doesn't match. You don't have a government ID. Uh, you're a college student in one state coming from another state. You haven't got a driving license in the state in which you're a student, etc., etc. You know, there's so many kind of, I mean, you know, the US is a past master at, uh, at suppressing the ability to register. If you just look at the deep south, and the number of grandfather clauses and poll taxes and literacy tests and constitution tests and you know god knows what else you know they've mastered the whole technique and i think that is all working again so uh, that's i think that's what will then probably keep the republicans in because because the other thing of course is so there's those demographics and the voter suppression second thing is the trumpism one there is a post trump persona what is he going to do? And so say he loses uh, in next week. I mean, there's every chance that he's going to try to capitalize in as a business person on the massive audience and his 40% plus approval ratings, which have stayed pretty constant throughout. That's a big business opportunity. So setting up a TV station, some sort of TV ev evangelical politician, holding rallies and stuff. I think he's going to carry on doing that. Secondly, there are people talking about Trumpists without Trump. So you've got Josh Hawley, Tom Cotton, you've got this T Tucker Carlson um, on uh, Fox News, and I'm sure there are many others too. So yes, the demographics are changing, but I'm not sure they're necessarily going to be um, having a massive impact on elections per se. The Republicans have made minority rule an art form, I think, over the past 25 years, uh, basically since uh, the 1990s uh, sort of seizure of the Houses of Congress by the Republicans. They've really focused in on delegitimizing the Democratic Party in a lot of ways. And if we look at you know who's more dangerous in the United States right now, it's not really Trump. Uh, Trump is you know obviously a loudmouth. Uh, he has proto-fascist leanings. He blows racist dog whistles whenever he goes, but he's not a particularly intelligent man. The same can't be said about Mitch McConnell, who has used every weapon available to him in uh, 
in the Senate to stifle judicial appointments under Obama, to obstruct the appointment of Supreme Court justices, to lay the groundwork for a conservative Supreme Court that is going to dominate American politics probably for the next 30 years, unless a potential Biden administration decides to expand the court, uh, which I think would be a perfectly legitimate move, uh, make it match the appellate courts. This doesn't seem to be a radical step forward. Uh, they've mastered the apparatus of the American state in a way that is probably not sustainable over the long term. I don't think it's sustainable for 50 years, but it would certainly be sustainable for another two or maybe three presidential elections. And by that time, American political culture may have shifted significantly. Uh, there was a really interesting piece of research put out uh, this week, this week or last week, which was comparing the political orientation of the Republican Party to uh, things like Erdogan's uh, AK AKP in Turkey. Uh, this is a party that's no longer committed to democratic governance. It's not committed to the rule of law. It's more oriented towards nationalism. It's more oriented towards perhaps chauvinism internationally. And it is not the Republican Party that could be linked to someone like, like, a, like a Rockefeller, a Nelson Rockefeller. That Republican Party seems dead. Uh, you know, you get people like um, Romney, who still represent a last sort of gleaming of that party, but these are people who are not going to be existing in the Republican Party in the near future. Uh, the people who are coming up, uh, inspired by you know, Turning Point USA in the United States, inspired by people like Tucker Carlson, these are going to be Trump Republicans, and they're going to be setting the party's future. So unless the party is completely purged and reinvented, this is going to be an autocratic force in American politics, which is something we haven't seen before in living memory, uh, or ever really in the United States history. And that's a scary thing, to be honest. If, that, if that's okay with you guys, we've looked into the future and into sort of the more recent past. But today I wanna to zoom back uh, 190 years and ask you about populism uh, of the 1830s. Now, what I'm thinking about as well is sort of a depiction of American democracy that is sort of, it's, it's rough and tumble sort of politics um, and you know there's even sort of fist fights and everything that sort of thing but it's never really sort of systematic violence that tends to be sort of a folkloristic view of American politics especially from the British perspective I'm thinking of Chauvin and not the, the European perspective I'm thinking of Chauvin in 80 days around the world as you know where he among many other things describes American election campaigns and this sort of a you know cowboys shooting you know rifles in the air but you know, there, there might be a few black eyes, but no one really gets hurt. So, so if we have this folkloristic view of American politics, just being sort of more loud mouth and rough and yeah, sometimes a wrestler or like a, you know, a showman gets elected. Um, but what you're saying, you know, is some would say, yeah, yeah, come on, you guys are just exaggerating. It's just like that, you know, yeah. what would you respond to such a charge? Well, I think, yeah, we, you can overplay. I mean, the U.S. has a kind of popular culture, if you like, a very kind of a abrasive um, self-concept where, you know, you, you speak the way you, you think, you know, we, we value the, the kind of common touch, if you like. But I think that obviously happens and there are obviously, I don't know, something like three quarters of a million elected positions in the American system of government as a whole. So you're going to get all kinds of characters running in elections for dog catcher in some backwater somewhere, and they're gonna deploy some salty 
salty and colorful language. So yes, and the US and other countries too, they go through phases also. There are phases in which a particular kind of political culture and behavior is acceptable, or a particular individual comes to the fore who deploys particular kinds of language, which can be quite abrasive and, and uh, you know, intolerant of minorities, ideological minorities, racial minorities, uh, opponents, and so on. Um, so yes, this is, we are in this, this particular kind of current phase, but I think what, as David said, I think we're talking out here about a, something maybe a little bit more institutionalized than a sort of spontaneous occasional eruptions. So that when you look back to 1994 and the sort of huge win for Newt Gingrich and the contract uh, with America and the delegitimization, the systematic delegitimization of the opposition, such that the to be a Democrat for a Republican leader or whatever was always, um, there's an epithet before you use the word Democrat or Clinton or whatever. And I think that's really the kind of depth of the crisis of which Trump and Trumpism is the latest kind of symptom. So I think it, and the landscape of the right uh, and the deployment of language uh, in particular ways, uh, which has sort of really has debased the civic culture. I think that is a quite a systematic and institutionalized form. So when you look at the landscape of the right today, you have a whole network of radio stations, you have Fox News at the pinnacle of the TV cable news, and you've got a whole series of think tanks and advocacy organizations. And you know, you've got the Koch brothers uh, initiative, if you like, from 2003-04, to shift the whole kind of the architecture of the right and the politics of the right-wing elected politicians further to the right even than their voters. So I think that's what is, so if you like, there are structural factors which are making the, the symptomatic Trump type individual probably more likely going forward, especially because you know, when it's quite impressive to have 85 to 90% of your Republican voters solidly behind you for four years and still behind you, even though this pandemic has I mean, for, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what else do you need to destroy someone's credibility than what has been going on for the last seven, eight, nine months. But if they're sticking with that candidate, it's a, there's something deeper than just President Trump and his buffoonery. That there are others lining up who may be um, a more coherent Trumpism, and yeah. and I think that's the kind of big structural shift. Um, so he may go, and he will, but I don't think the kind of underlying those structural shifts seem to be there and that he's he's shown that there's a kind of politics you can deploy which is pretty close to the mark on white supremacy and all that kind of thing and you can still pretty much win or nearly win an election yeah i mean i'm struck by the shift right i can remember when roberts was appointed to the supreme court back in well, during bush bush two during george the second's reign and people were alarmed at him as a judicial radical. And now he seems to be the representative of a moderate conservatism. And it's, it, it shows that even in the space of two decades, the political uh, map of America has been withdrawn. I think these institutional factors are really playing a big part. But at the same time, part of me wonders about how being situated in this, in this part of history 
is shaping our vision, right? So the, the view of American democracy that I have is very much formed by, you know, the, the legacy of people like Kennedy, LBJ, even Reagan, right? Which was a very, you know, for lack of a better term, civilized form of democracy. But Constantine, I think you're right when you talk about, you know, democracy hasn't always been this sort of civilized Norman Rockwell affair. Alexander Hamilton got shot by Aaron Burr back in the day. Uh, Andrew Jackson, as you mentioned, you know, uh, he, he got shot in a duel too, got shot in the heart, but was saved because he was wearing a really thick jacket. And then he shot the guy who shot him. Democracy has, you know, it has had some rough patches. And part of me wonders, well, is it just being situated in this political moment uh, with the legacy of sort of this golden age of the Cold War American democracy, city on the hill image? Has this just sort of skewed our view? And will 200 years from now, will historians be looking back now and say, well, this was just really a return to form for democracy. Uh, it's always been a pretty savage form of government. And it just, you know, its claws came out in 2016 through, I don't know, 2035. And then it slipped back. But part of me worries that that might be a bit optimistic and that the structural forces uh, at play in America and in many of the democracies, the liberal democracies in the world are really changing the nature of government that we're living under, or that we will be living under in the next sort of 20 years. I mean, I think one big difference is that just the, the, the sort of, we're talking about populism in an age of bureaucratic sort of um, permeation of society. Um, in an, well, what I mean is in, an, in a time where we have now modern governments that are able to use all these technologies. They have all these resources, you know, not just military and police technology, but you know, also um, obviously digital technologies. And, and and I mean, everything is really, really different from you know the 1830s in that respect. So you know, it's one thing for some guy, you know, to just you know to to shoot his rifle in the air in front of the polling station, and this is an, an isolated incident. And you know, you also mentioned some of these. It's it's very different from an era in which governments and, and other actors too just have so much more destructive, uh, constructive, but also destructive force at their disposal. So that obviously is a is a big, big difference that that makes even folkloristic attempts at rough and tumble kind of politics so much more dangerous, you know, when someone smart, uh, you know, has them at his or So, you know, thinking about that, I was, you know, I, I was thinking about something that Drew Weston wrote, uh, I think it's a, it's a few decades back now, uh, you know, in the book, uh, The Political Brain, where he looked at, uh, at American politics and he said, well, uh, he used survey data, finding out that, you know, by and large, Americans really like the Democrats with their policies. You know, if you look at the policies that Democrats sort of favor, uh, and you ask Americans, what do you think about that policy? You know, you find a huge advantage for Democrats in, in, in almost every particular policy where there's a where there's a debate going on between the two parties. Now, what he says is still Democrats lose <laughs> so many elections. Uh, especially considering this sort of advantage in terms of policy support, why? His response is um, that um, it's the language that they use. They, they need to use simpler language. They need to use more emotional language. Um, your response, David's and Inderjit's response is, they have a structural disadvantage that, you know, and they have a much, much more sort of cold-blooded opponent that is willing to use, you know, that masterfully use sort of the, sort of the institutional really deficiencies of the American system. 
And so thinking about these two guys, well, these, you know, the three guys, you two and then Drew West, and these are obviously two different recipes for how the Democrats could win. You know, either they need to change their language. So that's, you know, it's, that's easier said than done, but that's definitely feasible. And what do you guys think? Uh, what can the Democrats do to sort of prevent this kind of um, sort of this, this, this from happening and to, to sort of be, you know, to, to make sure not just to win this upcoming election, but to be sort of competitive uh, down the road if Republicans do that sort of thing that you just described? Yeah, that's, that's a really great and interesting and thought-provoking question. And it's one which I think most of us are kind of grappling with in various ways. And I think, I guess I get, my starting point is, is what is the nature of the Democratic Party? The, and American parties in general, but the Democratic Party in this case, and is it a mass party? Is it a party that mobilizes masses of people for extra parliamentary politics on a regular basis? It doesn't really. It's largely an electoral set of electoral machines which kind of go into gear largely for bureaucratic political sort of electoral purposes. And yet there are insurgencies from the left within the party and around the party as well. And the party tries to manage those. And I think the big opportunity would be, I would think, is to harness those extra parliamentary movements which have broken out in a big way on the left and in, among progressives broadly, which are to do with partly to do with a big, um, partly to do with the kind of globalization, automation, and the reconstruction of the whole kind of working population, but also the, uh, the, the, the millennial uh, experience and the 83 million Americans between the age of about 19 and 35 or 39, who basically are further to the left than the Democratic Party and further to the left than most Americans have ever been. They're talking about supporting socialism in quite large proportions and things like that. So I think that what the Democratic Party uh, could do and has historically done as well, uh, say in, from the 1920s into the 1930s, in, and even, even after 1890s, populism has absorbed some of that uh, passion and conviction and mobilizations to sort of, partly to contain and to integrate, but also partly has had to shift a little bit further to the left in order to accommodate. And I think that's what the Democratic Party uh, could do. To, but the DNC, and the forces behind uh, the Democratic Party's leadership have shown in two successive primaries uh, for the presidency the nomination in 2016 and 2020, they expend a lot more energy in defeating Bernie Trump than they do, uh, no, what's his name, not Bernie Trump, Bernie, Bernie Sanders. Sanders. <laughs> Bernie Sanders, uh, Freudian <laughs> slip there, uh, Bernie Sanders, then they actually do taking on Donald Trump. You know, Donald Trump, he, he goes right outside. He says he doesn't care about Congress and parliamentary politics. He, he is telling right-wing men to go and storm Michigan and liberate Michigan and liberate Virginia. And, you know, you know, two dozen of them, uh, one dozen of them just got arrested a couple of weeks ago by the FBI because they're plotting to kidnap the, the governors of Michigan and Virginia and prosecute and execute them. And... You know, and there's the national leadership of the Democratic Party hasn't organized a single thing, uh, and or, nor have they been very critical of Donald Trump. So the Democratic Party needs to be shifted to the left. Now, this election could 
elect a lot more people from brand new Congress, uh, people who are more akin to AOC and the squad, uh, that could increase a lot of pressure on the party itself. Mm. But the Democratic Party uh, needs to change if it's going to harness that extra energy outside. Yeah, I think that there is a, a big generational divide here between the leadership of the Democratic Party and uh, the next wave of people. You know, uh, after Barrett was appointed to the Supreme Court, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez almost immediately tweeted, pack the court, right? Mm. And this is what Democratic legislators mm. have to do. They have to seize control of every single dirty trick they can in the Senate and in the House to push forward their agenda. You know, we're talking about statehood for dc statehood for puerto rico increasing the number of justices on the supreme court and uh, do exactly what the republicans have done because unlike the republicans the democrats have a democratic majority right they have the people backing them and as Indrajit was just saying if we look at the attitudes of millennials and generation Z, these are aligned with liberal values liberal if not socialist values and uh, this has the Republicans panicked because they know that they're not going to win the generational game, which is why they're focusing on the Supreme Court and why they're pushing sort of the talk radio media empire to essentially fight a cult. Well, they've been fighting a culture war. We all know this. Uh, but, you know, it's not uh, they're not winning with people under 40. And why would they? You know, look at the standard of living that Generation Z is looking at when they get out of university or millennials who are in the workforce right now. American capitalism is not working for them. And uh, this terrifies people in the Republican Party, but it also terrifies people who are running the Democratic Party right now. You know, Joe Biden, as much as Donald Trump says that he's a socialist, Joe Biden is about as conservative as you can get and still be a member of the Democratic Party. And it is bizarre to me that he is the person who is carrying the flag in this election for the Dems because he is yesterday's man entirely. And they seem to be running an extinction agenda for their own party. And I have no idea why. Okay, so in a sense, it, it, it does make sense if you think about the strategy of the Democratic Party to elect someone as, as candidate, as someone running for president, who in some ways is similar to Donald Trump, who sort of can beat him by taking back things that the Democrats believe belong to them, which is the blue wall of states, mm -hmm. um, which is white working class voters. Now they had two choices to find someone who is similar to Trump, either by voting for Bernie Sanders, who is also similar to Trump in many ways. And India Jade, I know that, um, you know, obviously you misspoke when you said uh, Bernie Trump, and, and I'm not saying that Bernie Sanders is in any way as a person or as sort of a political leader and, and the integrity. And, and from that point of view, he's not like Trump at all, but he's also a populist. He's a left-wing populist, but he's a populist. So the Democrats had a choice to vote sort of a, a sort of a middle-of-the-road Democrat who also um, has an appeal to white working-class voters or to select someone else with a different strategy, but with the goal, again, of appealing to working-class voters. So I think the strategic intent was the same, only sort of the, the two options were somewhat disparate approaches to that. Um, so what you guys are suggesting, if I understand you correctly, is to leave that sort of... Uh, uh, that sort of a strategy behind and to refocus the efforts on all the different demographics um, and you put your hope in millennials and in a new coming generation 
Um, so um, that makes sense. But what are the downsides of this strategy? I mean, every sort of every electoral strategy must have a downside. Uh, I mean, do you think this is this is by definition a winning strategy, or do you see any potential downsides as well? But could I just sort of um, take you up on your point about left populism? Yeah. Um, I don't know that they are equivalents, uh, at least in this case. I mean. Oh, no, no, they're not equivalent. Sorry, sorry. They're, they're not equivalent at all. They just have a core of similarities in some ways, not as a personality, yeah, I mean, not in terms of policies, but they do have, uh, as, as political scientists define populism, there is obviously a core of populism that can be left and, and right wing, but there's some similarities in that respect. Yeah, sorry for interrupting. Just wanted to be yeah. absolutely sure about that. Yeah. No, clearly there are overlaps. And when you look at the the anti-corporate message of Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump in 2016 and that kind of thing. But actually, in a way, that that can be a source of some confusion, too, because very often, I mean, you know, Robert, I think Robert Paxton, uh, The Anatomy of Fascism, a wonderful book. And one of the things he does there when he looks at the fascism, he says, I'm not going to look at what they say and what they write. I'm going to look at what they do and who benefits from the kind of things that they do when they get into power. And, and then you take the, you, you, that populist um, rhetoric which surrounds their entire kind of uh, message is blown up because in the end, it's the traditional classes which have pretty much had all the influence and prestige and privilege and power who not only benefit then, but they outlast the populist who got them uh, retained their positions. And I think in a way, Trump is a populist in that regard because he is fully allied to benefiting those established privileged corporate classes and so on. And Sanders, on the other hand, I think, I mean, obviously the Democratic Party uh, has got many corporate sponsors as well, but I think with Sanders is, is a much less uh, in that regard populist because he was focusing on kind of working class voters, but also young people who are in economic and other sort of dire positions and needs. So I, I don't think the two are necessarily both even populisms. I would say that the Sanders left uh, is, is, I wouldn't call it populism. I think I would, I think it would, it's anti-elitist, but it's, it's not the same as populism. Uh, on the, I can't remember your question now. <laughs> well, what's the downside? I know, but this is this is great. Um, but, but what's the downside of sort of pursuing that strategy that you suggested? You know, sort of refocus the Democratic Party, embrace extra parliamentary initiatives, become more than just sort of an electoral a coalition of electoral machines, um, and appeal to sort of those socialist uh, socialism embracing millennial voters. Um, that makes yeah, sense, um, but the there's downside, a down, there must be a downside to that. What's the I downside? Guess the downside would be constant in, um, I wouldn't use these terms, but the tyranny of the majority could be a downside. That is, if you do actually galvanize an electoral majority, as in what the numbers would suggest and the demographics would suggest, and the polling about particular policies would suggest, you could also get the suppression of those who then get locked out of power purely because now you constitute the vast majority and you could be a kind of almost a permanent majority. Uh, but then you'd have to be committed to the sort of idea of democratic rights and minorities, other minorities, ideological minorities, and so on as well, uh, and the checks and balances that would uh, occur. But I think if, if democracies uh, are supposed to be the will of the people 
as expressed through electoral politics, where everyone's had a fair chance to get registered and to vote, then I guess in a way it will shift the political culture. It'll control and check the power of other sort of relatively minority forces, by which I mean maybe pro-corporate forces. It would create a different kind of polity and a political economy. And you know what, that might actually, in my view, I think it'd be a very, very good thing. Uh, but for those people at the receiving end of it, if you are, don't believe in paying taxes, you think the federal government is actually a conspiracy of some form, uh, and you think that you're selling the country out to the United Nations, then clearly they're not going to be very happy. And then in a land committed to the bearing of arms, uh, that could create its own kinds of uh, issues and problems uh, of those armed minorities and maybe not such small minorities anymore. So I guess that yeah. would be the downside. The exclusion of some could lead to a sort of a rump type politics, which might be become more extreme than it might otherwise be. Yeah, I like, I think, uh, so if I agree with that, the sort of more immediate threat, I think of appointing someone or sort of set, putting someone like Sanders forward for the Democratic Party uh, is, is Citizens United, right? The amount of money that is in American politics right now is unbound. And mm -hmm. Joe Biden, for all of his faults, has a lot of supporters on Wall Street, right? Uh, if they ran Bernie Sanders, that money would be flowing to Trump. And if we were dealing with, say, Bernie Sanders or a Sanders-style candidate versus Mitt Romney, then Wall Street will flock into uh, a Republican camp. And that money talks in America because of campaign finance reform. And it pours into any number of media outlets. It pours into an ever more sophisticated uh, online operation. I mean, one of the things that the Republicans have mastered or Trump has mastered is online, uh, right? On the cyber side of things. He knows how to speak to people through Facebook, through Twitter. And this is profound and money accelerates it, right? You know, uh, it uh, amplifies it even more. And if the, you know, it's funny, we call them populists. Uh, when I think of populists, you know, I think of disenfranchised farmers in the Midwest. Yeah. But when we talk about populists, we're talking about people with the most advanced electoral machines behind them that are fueled by almost limitless corporate money. If the Democrats were to put forward Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as their candidate in, let's say, when would it be, um, 2032, maybe, you can see a huge Wall Street swing to the Republicans that might be sufficient to convince people to vote Republican, even though the demographics are shifting, because, you know, not to sound like a, an old-fashioned Marxist, false consciousness is a hell of a drug, right? People will see themselves in, uh, you know, Kim Kardashian going to her COVID-free island for her 40th birthday. I don't know if, if you saw this, but this uh, was on Twitter today uh, or yesterday. Kim Kardashian managed to rent out a COVID-free island to celebrate her 40th birthday with all of her friends. And now this is the type of thing that, in my opinion, should start the French Revolution. But people like it on Twitter. They like it on Instagram. They identify with the elites. And if the Republican Party, with a lot of money behind them, can master social media, then this might erode this Democrat or demographic advantage towards the, Repo or towards the Democrats, uh, which is sort of... Uh, a dystopian vision of the future, I guess. Yeah. Well, the, the sort of the optimism and the pessimism, you know, they're in uh, some intricate and interesting balance in both of your statements. So, you know, that's, that's really shining through. You both have this 
fundamental optimism about things, you know, developing in sort of a, you know, a good future. But then there's, you're also very sort of prescient about sort of the institutional and, and, and financial and other obstacles to that. And we've really looked at sort of a long, looked at this in sort of the long durée kind of perspective, you know, from the 1830s until today and into the future, 2032. Um, now, looking at this again with an eye on the upcoming presidential election, you know, we've talked about all of these contingencies and you both have very sort of, uh, you agree that, you know, there's, yeah, Joe Biden is going to win the, um, the, the popular vote. Um, there's going to be violence, um, no matter who wins. Um, um, and the courts will decide, uh, uh, and you know, in January, there's a good chance that uh, you know, even though Joe Biden doesn't, uh, even though Joe Biden will win the popular vote, and even should have a majority in the electoral college, he will not be president. So now I'm asking you, not what this is from the perspective of you know, what does Donald Trump need to do to become president? That's how we approach this. But let's look at it from the other perspective. What needs to happen? So that Joe Biden will become president at the end of January next year. Oh, wow. <laughs> I think the Supreme Court is one avenue, which is if we if we take it, it's 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 a it's a difficult one because the Supreme Court may not support Trump in his contestation. So that it's not a guarantee. And as as uh, we've seen with just Chief Justice Roberts, you know, he has been some sometime a break on some of the most excesses, the biggest excesses of the Trump administration as well. Uh, but on the other hand, with the 6-3 majority, etc. So if we see that as blocked off, I mean, it's famous, I, I guess it's, we go back to Jackson, uh, the Supreme Court decision in the 1830s, where he said, okay, fine, let them enforce it. Who's going to enforce it? Uh, no, so who could who could then do it? It could be two sources. One is the military, and the second uh, is mass Belarus-style prevention of Trump taking office, the inability to govern just because of the result and its uh, its effects. Otherwise, I, it's hard to see Biden's path. To the White House. It, even right. a landslide victory, you know, like in this kind of the everyone, you know, lots of people said, all right, he needs to win in a landslide. And if on November 3rd, hmm. even if you dismiss all sorts of uh, uh, votes that you know haven't been counted yet, but if, the, if, if CNN and MSNBC and Fox News, if they announce Biden wins in a landslide all over the Midwest, uh, he wins uh, Texas, even in Iowa and Georgia. Do you think that would be enough? Well, 70 million early and mail-in votes have already been cast. That's over 50% of what all the votes cast in 2016. Now, I, I don't know what is going to happen to those 70 million votes. As in, are they all fraudulent? Are they all, you know, what percentage is in-person early voting? Which percentage is mail-in voting? Uh, who, which party is predominant in the forms of voting? I think it's about 50-50, apparently, from what I've read up to now. Uh, what proportion of those are going to be rejected? It, it just is it, uh, the idea that it's going to be a, a result on the third or the fourth. I, I don't know how a landslide happens because Trump has already declared he can't lose unless the election is stolen. Mm. So he's, yeah. 
you know, I think that's where we're kind of stuck in this, this loop. So David, what do you right. think? What's the, so, what's the road for Joe Biden to win? What's the, what's the route for Joe Biden to win? Is there any? Uh, so yes, there is. Uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to sort of cards on the table. My Trump path to victory is my nightmare scenario. It's the one that keeps me up at night. The one that I think is going to happen uh, is that Joe Biden is going to win. This is me sort of, I'm, I'm walking back a little bit, some of the stuff that I said, but I think Biden is going to win. And I can see two ways that he gets there. Uh, not necessarily a landslide either. Uh, one requires some, some Kremlinology uh, about the Supreme Court, right? And I think Energy was alluding to this. Uh, we know that there are some very conservative members of the Supreme Court who will back Trump probably in any circumstances. So obviously, Kavanaugh, he's already laid out his cards. He's, he's nailed his, his flag to, to Trump. Barrett, I think her willingness to be used as a prop by Trump at the White House on her confirmation uh, shows that she's probably Trump's creature as well. Thomas voted with Rehnquist back in Bush v. Gore on this issue of counting. Uh, so I think those three are definitely going to support Trump. Now we've got the other three liberal justices who won't support Trump probably, uh, which leaves us with three people. Roberts has been a break, as Inderjeet said, uh, and that's, so let's say maybe he takes a more uh, reserved approach. This leaves uh, Gorsuch and Elito, right? Neither of them are the most conservative justices. And Gorsuch, even though he was appointed by Trump, has gone against the Trump administration on certain rulings. So there is a possibility that there's enough members, including conservative members of the Supreme Court, who are willing to adhere to the rule of law and are willing to not be overtly political, perhaps recognizing the damage that this would do to the architecture of the Republic. That's an optimistic, Kremlin-esque version of this. So let's say in a Trump uh, v. Biden, Biden wins. The more direct way is Pennsylvania, right? If Biden carries Pennsylvania on November 3rd in an incontestable way, it's very difficult for Trump to get an electoral coalition that takes the electoral college. I mean, he might rail against it and he might make things really difficult for the transition. He might uh, encourage political violence. He might foghorn white supremacists. But I think ultimately the forces of the democratic machine and by that, I mean the, the machine of the republic itself, not the Democratic Party, will make a Biden uh, swearing in in January inevitable. Uh, and that's the key state for me. That's the one that I'm staying up for on Tuesday is going to be Pennsylvania. Uh, if Biden carries Pennsylvania by, say, seven points or five points even, then he's looking really good to win. You know, if he wins Texas, you know, like all bets are off. I'll believe it when I see it because that has not happened in my lifetime, a Democrat in Texas. Uh, but if I'm being optimistic, I can see an electoral college pathway for Biden that is fairly robust if the polling holds, right? The polling right now has Biden leading by something like 10 points nationally. In those swing states, it's really tight. You know, it's, uh, it's tight in Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, and Ohio. Pennsylvania, though, Biden's looking pretty strong. And, you know, if you want some really good news, if you're willing to embrace a rogue poll, uh, ABC and the Washington Post gave him a 17-point lead in Wisconsin. 
that is, you know, I know a rug pull when I see one, but you know, maybe it's not that far out. Maybe it's five points wrong. Uh, maybe we're being very conservative from some sort of 2016 PTSD on the polling error, and we're going to see a robust Biden uh, majority in a lot of the important swing states. This is me being very cheerful and optimistic, and I don't know whether that's actually going to happen, but you know, I can you know, imagine waking up on November 4th. I'll be having ankle surgery the day before, so we'll be in a cloud uh, of pain medicine and being told that Biden has won a solid victory in the Electoral College, and then I'll just be able to sleep for the rest of the week. But, you know, who knows? It might just be a fever dream. Beautiful. That's, I love it. I think <laughs> optimism of the, uh, what was it? Was it? What did Gramsci say? Pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. <laughs> well, the, 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 the interesting thing is you guys are obvious, the source of your optimism, you're both optimistic in some ways and then pessimistic in some others. Uh, and that's because the source of your optimism is different. For, for David, it seems like the source of your optimism is the institutions, the machinations of the Republic. And for Indajit, you, you put your stakes on the people. Uh, and sort of they, they will sort of break through whatever institutional obstacles people put in their way. You know, you, again, you both are optimistic, but in, in different ways. And I found that very interesting. Um, and that, that also sort of informs, I think, um, you know, what you say about a potential Biden win or an Indigit's case in particular about sort of the, the future um, of sort of, you know, left-wing politics or the, the future of the Democratic Party and in response to this sort of um, right populist revolution. I think I thought David's analysis there was really good, very, very um, sharp. Well, well, we'll see if it's right. That's the problem. <laughs> you know what? I think I, yeah, I agree with the broad summary, Constantine, uh, of the kind of distinctions between the way in which we uh, both analyze things. But I do believe in the, the power of deep structures, I guess. There are deep structures and the Supreme Court is a deep structure. And I mm. think you can be appointed because of one ideological tendency, but you can become something completely different once you sit in that seat. And when you look at the consequences of decisions, as well, so it, it's it's a it's a you know it's a it's it's not a done deal mm. which way that court goes, and I think certainly with Roberts and the influence one hopes that he has over um, the newly relatively newly appointed individuals, uh, I think I hope they think about their place in history before they take a vote. Uh, so there are deep struggles, but then there's the states too. You know, the number of jurisdictions, the states and the cities, the ability to uh, to have some control over local life, even if you lose control of the federal federal government and so on. So that actually, I think, enables a structural kind of opposition to carry on, even when things skew in other ways. So I think it's a combination of the two. And I think some of those deep structures can be moved by popular opposition. Mm. By construction of a climate of opinion uh, which says about the talks about the governability of of a particular set of arrangements so i think it's the combination of the two i think uh, i think is perfect <laughs> yeah. well I'm, I'm hoping that we're going to see sort of the spirit of james madison descend on the supreme court and we get a unanimous uh, decision in biden's favor if it goes to the supreme court it would be a magnificent third act twist in the saga of 2020 is that all of all of Trump's appointees turn against him, and then stab him in the back? That would be oh, be delicious. I, uh, it's a, it's an audio format, but viewers or listeners, if you could see me, I'm doing the Italian chef kiss. Mwah. 
That would be great. Icing or a cherry on top of the cake. Sounds like you've already got taken a bit of the anesthetic before <laughs> your ankle surgery. <laughs> but yes, one hopes, one hopes. Well, gosh, folks, thanks for listening to the City Politics Podcast. I'd also like to thank Inderjeet Parmar for joining us today. You can follow Inderjeet on Twitter at US Empire. And while you're at it, you can follow us too at The City Politics. And hey, you know what would be great, y'all? If you give us a like on SoundCloud, maybe give us a couple of stars on Apple Podcasts. And if you're feeling like being a real hero, well, then you could write a little review for us. This is the City Politics Podcast, the official podcast of the Department of International Politics at City, University of London. Thanks to Cambio for the music, and as ever, to Atina Dimitrova, our valiant producer. Take care, everyone.